Today's read, A Moment of Silence, Midnight Three by Sister Soldier, Chapter 13, Identity. Uncuff him, the lawyer said to the guard, posted outside my hospital room the second she arrived. He did. Please, excuse us. She dismissed him politely, but with a tone that caused him to obey her. He exited, but went no farther than the front door where he stood immediately outside. He wasn't the same officer who stood over me in the hospital waiting room this morning for three and a half hours. It was nighttime now, and she was just arriving, looking hurried and slowly calming herself. We have the right to refuse medical treatment, she said to me strangely. She was the one who had requested the court order that I be checked into a hospital. Why was she saying this now? I didn't respond. I want you to be aware of your rights, she said. You have some legitimate, I mean real, injuries, so... It was within my power to insist that you be examined at a hospital. However, I also wanted to slow down the process and have you and me get organized. A lot of crucial legal decisions are made in a hurry without regard for the truth, she said. And I understood. I took note of how she switched from using the word legitimate to her translation of the word into the simple real. Of course I knew the word legitimate and didn't need her to break it down for me, but she didn't know that because she didn't know me. Besides, believe it or not, the food here is better than the jail food at Rikers. Much better. She's... She seemed sure as though she had eaten at Rikers Island or observed or overheard the opinions of others eating at Rikers Island. I had eaten a bland but decent meal here in the hospital, challenging myself to lower my standards regarding food so that I could endure imprisonment. Baked chicken, mashed potatoes, and string beans, that's what you ate and orange juice and water, she said, making me aware that even when she is not present, she knows each of my actions and choices. You didn't eat the slice of chocolate cake, she added, and looked towards me as though she expected a reaction. It was nonsense to me for her to care about such a small detail. I gave her no reaction. The truth is, I purposely didn't touch that cake because it's sugar. As I prepared to be locked away doing real time, I didn't want to be enslaved to any addictions like salt, seasonings, sugar, or food prepared with love and quality ingredients like I enjoyed every day at home, whether it was prepared by my Uma or either of my wives. I didn't want to yearn for things. I would hold onto them in my memory, but not crave them. Craving anything is a form of self-torture, 
my sensei had taught me. Letting go of your desires is the key to self-control in captivity. Even in living life as a free man, it is necessary that you have the ability to control your desires. She opened her briefcase, the one with the stickers plastered on the inside. It was fuller than it had been earlier in the day. She pulled out five thin books, more like pamphlets. These are each books of names, she said. I looked as she spread them across the table. In case you decide to choose a new one for yourself, she added. Her name books each had a different title. Spanish names, French names, Christian names, Jewish names, Muslim names, African names. It looks like you were hit in the head. Perhaps you don't remember your name? She stared at me. In her eyes was feminine strength. I was thinking carefully. Was she suggesting that I should say that I can't remember because I was injured by the police? Was this some legal strategy that she needed me to follow, but that she wasn't allowed to tell me straight out? From here forward, your fingerprints, your blood and urine samples, everything will be linked directly with the name that we place on your legal papers, at least until your parents or guardians show up, or an authority discovers and confirms something different. Do you understand? She asked. I was sitting still, but my mind was spinning faster than the rotation of the earth. I had not identified myself to them, but now they were creating an identity for me through my body fluids and prints. And this information that the system collects and compiles will follow you for the rest of your life, she said. Since you are a juvenile, or shall we say an adolescent, she paused and looked again into my eyes. There are cases where minors can have their records expunged, hardly ever in the case of murder, but even if your misdemeanor charges are successfully expunged, it's never actually erased. She had me now. I didn't know the meaning of the word expunged. I didn't have access to a dictionary. I wouldn't ask her to define it for me either. I'm going to grab a coffee and I'll be right back, she said, leaving her opened briefcase on the table. She grabbed some coins from her purse and left her wallet as well. Another test. I knew. She had only been here for six minutes and it seemed that she had set up six different tests for me through each of her words and gestures, questions and actions. Everything I had accomplished and avoided and my young life was now coming into the open. I realized she was correct. What I had working for me though, was that this was my first and only arrest. I had never been a part of their legal system or their school system 
or even their employment system. Even my job at Cho's Fish Market was a cash-only transaction from a Chinaman who, like most foreigners such as myself, knew young people are capable and need to work despite American ideas and laws forbidding it. I had never been hospitalized in America. There was no medical history for me. I had not been sick or even visited a hospital except for the time that Naja was born. Back then, I didn't sign anything. They only asked questions of Uma and required her signature. True, I had translated their questions so that Uma could understand them, but Uma and I do not share the same last name. We are Sudanese from the land of fathers. Each Sudanese person is identified through his or her father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. Uma's first name is Sana. The name of her father is Safaldin. The name of her grandfather is Al-Salam. The name of her great-grandfather is Saif. So, her true name is Sana bint Safaldin Abdal Salam Saif, and the meaning is deeper than any non-believer could or would ever imagine or know. Sana means splendor. Safaldin means pure religion. Al Salam means peace. Saif means sword, and Uma is the splendor of pure religion, and Uma brings peace and the sword, and well, we know that is so necessary to guard peace. Not one of Uma's names or the names of her fathers is my name. My name is only the names of my fathers. On all documents that Uma ever signed in America, she used a combination of one of her four true names. Americans only require two names, first and last, Sometimes she was Sana Saif. Sometimes she was Sana Safaldin. Sometimes she was Sana Abdal Salam. Sometimes she didn't even use Sana, but a combination of the names of two of her fathers. We believed our true names. Their meanings and depth were wasted on Americans who couldn't seem to properly pronounce any name or thing that was in English. Americans, whose names mostly had no meaning or depth. I found that out in casual conversation. Ask an American his or her name and follow up by asking the meaning. And there is no meaning, at least not one that any of them knows. Other than my friends, Chris and Amir, I knew better than to ask any African-Americans about their father. It was considered some type of intrusion or insult, and it was a question they honestly couldn't answer. But there is immigration. That thought exploded like a bomb in my mind. Uma and I had recently obtained citizenship. They required a thumbprint from me. We had also obtained passports. 
my true name was definitely registered on my passport and the name of my mother was required there as well. They won't check that for or look that deeply, I told myself. I desperately wanted to believe that, yet I knew now that it was my vulnerability and it was a link that I had not considered. They'll see that my fingerprints don't match anything or anyone in their criminal system or criminal records, and they will stop right there. I convinced myself. I reassured myself. I needed my thoughts to become facts. As long as there was no way for them to connect me to my Uma, I kept thinking and repeating that to myself. Fuck it. I'll choose a new name that cannot be traced back to my Uma, who I have to protect with my life. I'll choose a name that completely separated me and severs any connection to my real life and true identity. I'll choose a name that will follow me for my remaining time living on American soil. The name I choose will be for them. For those who I am certain will only ever see me as a murderer. My true name will remain the name known and used only by those who love me loyally and deeply. My true name will remain the name of my fathers and most importantly, the name of my soul. Renaming myself took effort. Even though it would not be my real name, I didn't want the name of a fool, a clown, or a sucker. I thought about African Americans and the types of names they had. I needed my false name to sound American so they wouldn't go searching through immigration records. Names of American entertainers and athletes kept circulating in my mind. Those were the things American blacks were known for. Michael Jordan, I said aloud, as I sat alone in the guarded hospital room. He has a father. He's black-skinned like me. He plays ball like me. He's a man of action, not a trash talker like most. He went at that game with a concentration and an energy that was unlike any other player. I admired that to the fullest. More than that, I admired how he gave the game his all. Is a champion in his own right, even without his team. He seemed real, faced the same challenges that any and every regular, everyday man faced. I remember the game he played this year on April 20th. It was against the Boston Celtics, starring three-time MVP Larry Bird. Me and Amir checked that game on his television. I remember the announcer saying, Can one man beat the Celtics? Referring to Michael Jordan, who is young, only a sophomore in the league, and coming off of a foot injury, but up against some hefty competition and seasoned players. That's how my life is. I'm just one young man up against some hefty circumstances and some dirty players. But I'm still pushing, working, fighting, and most of all, believing solidly that I can win. Michael Jordan knew he couldn't win by being like every other player or by playing the game the same way his opponents did. 
He was even comfortable looking like himself, styling his kicks and basketball shorts the way he needed to rock them, and then reversing it, causing everybody to want to be like him instead. In that game, Jordan scored 63 points. Crazy. He had the Boston boys frustrated afraid they were going to lose on their home court, which hadn't happened to them for a long stretch. At the free throw line, he forced the game into overtime with his accuracy and skill. I smiled, and then I laughed. I loved the way he made them sweat. I loved the fear he put in their eyes. I loved the way he made them hustle hard so that even if they won over him, they had to fucking earn it. I love the way, even though Boston won that game, all everybody was talking about was Michael Jordan and the spanking he gave Boston. A whipping so severe, it was clear that even though they won, he was a force to fear in the future. He would become a record breaker. Even though Jordan was not more than seven feet tall like the veteran Will Chamberlain, he was swift skilled and accurate enough to break Wilt's record-setting 100-point game. Young Michael Jordan was the future of absolute dominance. I smiled. That's the name I'll call myself. Jordan. I didn't dig the name Michael, so I dropped that. Yeah, he's a real man living a real life. He hit 63 points but still didn't win. I could relate to that. In his mind, he was probably the same type of thoughts I had moving in my mind at this very moment. Time to refresh and reflect and strategize and train hard and go hard and hit him again. Maybe Jordan was watching the film of his game and thinking to himself, even though I did a tremendous performance, I see a few flaws that I need to clean up and fortify. I see some flaws in myself as well as I'm reflecting, but my flaws were a lot less than my victories. Alhamdulillah. The lawyer returned before I had come up with a last name, like the two name Americans. The names of colors raced around my head Jordan Black, Jordan Brown, Jordan Blue. Then adjectives started swirling in my thoughts. Jordan Strong, Jordan True, Jordan Power. She wasn't carrying her coffee cup. Instead, she approached me with a newspaper folded and tucked beneath her armpit. She placed the paper on the table, then extended her hand and said, Please allow me to formally introduce myself. I'm Ein Eliana Aronson, your attorney. I'm on your side. And you are? She asked calmly, as though I was not a prisoner, and she and I were just meeting in the bookstore, still extending her hand as though she wanted us to shake hands. I extended my hand and answered, Jordan. I paused and added, Jordan man, she smiled. Six days of silence. I'm honored, Jordan. Nice to meet you. Before we get started, I 
need to be certain that you are aware and that you are understanding me when I speak. It's really for your sake. A defendant is placed in a completely different category when he is not understanding his surroundings or is not able to process and understand the words being spoken to him or the charges against him. So, I'll ask you a few questions. Please, answer them as soon as the answers come to mind for you. What year is this? She asked. 1986, I answered calmly. Who was our president? Ronald Reagan and Vice President George Bush, I answered like a real proud American. Who was the mayor of New York? Ed Koch, I said in an even tone. Everybody knew him. He is the mayor who rides the New York City subway. What's the name of the New York baseball team, she asked. The New York Yankees, of course, I said. Okay, those were fairly easy questions, right? She asked me. Now, a few more which are a bit more difficult. Who is Albert Einstein? A genius, was all I responded. She smiled. Who is William Shakespeare? An author, a writer, a poet, I said. Last one, who is Holden Caulfield? She looked at me like she had me stumped. She leaned back in her chair and waited as though she was sure she needed to give me extra time. Yet she looked like she knew that even with extra time to think, I would come up blank. A fool, I replied. A fool, she repeated, and asked at the same time. A fool who some fool wrote about in a novel titled Catcher in the Rye, I said. She smiled again. So you enjoy books, she stated happily at the same time as asking. I read books. I only enjoy the good ones, I replied. Is that it? I asked her. Now let's talk about Lance Polite, she said, swiftly switching her topic and casually dropping the name of the jackass I had murdered. She checked my face and opened her copy of the Daily News to page three. Who? I asked calmly. She just looked at me. Very clever, was all she said, and she lowered her eyes back onto the article. I checked the headline. Lance, not so polite, it read. And the caption below the headline said, Man murdered in a public execution at a Brooklyn block party. Community concert was himself a convict, a repeat sexual offender, and a public nuisance. I didn't say anything. She went into her opened briefcase, her eyes taking note that her wallet was right where she left it and how she left it, her name books still laid out exactly the way she laid them out and untouched by me. Even her Parker pen was in the same position. She pulled out some papers and began spreading them out before me. They were all clipped articles. She had some of the text in each of the articles highlighted with a yellow marker. What stood out to me was one headline that referred to me as the silent killer. In each of the articles, there was only one photo. It was the same one of a faceless me with my nine in his mouth. 
If you look closely at this article and this one too, she said pointing, they each suggest that this was a drug-related execution and that you are suspected to be a member of a gang of armed and dangerous men who specialize in robbing drug dealers. She was staring into my eyes. I was silent. I don't believe it, she said. I think that's not at all who you are or what actually happened. I need you to confide in me so that I can defend you properly. Her to defend me. It sounded strange in my head. My gaze was steady, but inside I was getting heated. Not at her, but at the insult in one of the news articles. It is definitely not an honor to be branded a thief, even if I was allegedly robbing hustlers. I am not aware of exactly what crime I'm being charged with or the reason that I'm being held, I suddenly told her. She revealed a half smile. You're right. You have not been arraigned yet, which is highly unusual after six days of being held, and I will certainly highlight that fact and challenge that process. Your arraignment is, is actually where you will hear the judge read the charges against you. I talked to the court today. They had, they had you listed as an adult, and so far, it seems that you are definitely going to be charged with resisting arrest and assaulting a police officer. We can survive those charges, and I will defend you against them. However, pending there is a police officer's affidavit stating that you confessed to having murdered Lance Polite, she said, straight-faced and searching me with her green eyes. Why don't you believe it? I suddenly asked her. Believe what? She said. That I am a part of an armed and dangerous gang that robs drug dealers. She paused, adjusted her posture in her seat and posture in her seat and said very calmly and casually for a few different, very important and very pivotal reasons. The first of which is because I sit across the table with armed robbers, drug dealers, and murderers every day. I know what it looks like. I know what it feels like. I was silent. Look, I'm a court-appointed attorney. I'm not sure that you know what that means. I've been in court all day today and will do the same tomorrow. I have a caseload of 212 clients. Right now, she checked her watch, I'm off duty. I'm not supposed to be here working, but I am. Tomorrow morning, I'll be scheduled to appear before five different judges, all at the same time, 9 a.m., which you and I and they all know is impossible. You are one of the appearances that I have to make out of the five at 9 a.m. I plan to show up for you if you make it possible for me by communicating with me and trusting that I am on your side. Why my case, I asked. I wanted her to reveal her motivations. I had observed that each of the cops, detectives, and other authorities I had encountered so far would mention overtime pay, promotions, credits, benefits, receiving stars, stripes, or medals in relation to cornering 
and capturing and convicting me. Excuse me, she stalled. Out of five cases at 9 a.m., why take mine? I asked her calmly. She wanted to know more about me. I needed to know more about her. She placed her right hand over her stomach and let it rest there. Gut feeling, she said firmly. Besides, you have no idea what kind of charges they are cooking up for you at the arraignment or how many eyes are watching this case because the shooting allegedly took place in the presence or proximity of a New York State senator. There is major media hysteria, but let me tell you something. Most reporters in particular, and people in general, have a short attention span. This will be a big story until the next big story comes along and buries it. The thing is, even though all may forget you and forget what happened, if your case is not handled properly, you'll never forget forget, because the consequences are quite severe. I got your arraignment I got your arraignment postponed today and it's a good thing I did. You got six stitches in your head and a couple of fractured ribs. Good for you. The rest of your medical results will come back sometime tomorrow. I ran the information I received today over to the district attorney's office. They needed to know that some wonderful policeman beat you before you were ever booked and arraigned. Now, I've got the medical record to back it up, and tomorrow's arraignment is our last chance to squeeze this matter in for this week. Tomorrow is Thursday. Friday will be motion day at the courthouse. The courts will be focused on something completely different. I don't see how they could possibly delay your arraignment any further, pushing it back until Monday. If they try, I'll know they're just buying time in addition to breaking the law due to lack of evidence to even charge you with the felony crimes. Then I'll get them for unlawful imprisonment. She was thinking and speaking at the same time. She was revealing her passion. I like that. I could see that she somehow enjoyed the fight. Maybe she even chose the most challenging situations on purpose. What if you're wrong? Your gut feeling, I asked her. I'm hardly ever wrong. And I studied this case from the beginning, which is always good when a defendant's lawyer is brought onto the case early. The earlier an attorney gets involved in your defense, the better. Why were you studying the case from the beginning? I pushed. It seemed like there was more to this woman than just me being one of her 212 open cases. After being questioned for more than four days, I knew not to accept just anything some official was saying. Dig dig deeper, I told myself. She paused before responding, folded her arms in front of her, and exhaled deeply. Then she unfolded her arms and moved her hands beneath the table, almost as though trying to hide them. She began spinning her black embroidered bracelet around her left wrist like a nervous quirk. Finally, she leaned back in her chair. 
Do you like animals? She asked me. I thought of camels and horses and giraffes, beautiful and amazing creatures that Allah created. Yes, I responded. Do you believe that animals have a soul? She asked strangely. That they can feel and cry and mourn and hurt the same as human beings? She sounded absolutely serious and emotional after not being emotional at all. I paused thinking. I knew how I would answer as the Muslim man that I am. It is a good answer that would take some time to explain, but this situation required me to give her the answer that would most benefit me in this scenario. I could tell. I assembled my words carefully, hand-picked. They were also words that are true to me. Animals are living and breathing seeing and hearing they each make sounds that suggest that they communicate and express so of course they can feel I said avoiding the soul part of her question but what does this have to do with you and me Lance Polite comes up on my list she said list I repeated she paused American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. I've been a member since I was a teenager. We keep a list of offenders and pay close attention to repeat offenders, she said. I was lost. She seemed smart and sharp at first. Now I was debating whether or not she was crazy. What was she talking about? Lance Polite is a repeat offender, a guy who has been reported, accused, and convicted more than once for cruelly killing animals for no reason at all. It goes back to even before he became an adult. If this man was killing animals even when he was a kid, he must be a pretty sick creep. And it all goes together with his criminal past and convictions of molesting boys and girls. This is a guy who I peg as a sociopath. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, but I feel that anyone who hurts animals or children, she didn't finish her sentence. Anyone who kills animals or hurts children, you go after them, I stated. It wasn't really a question. On the day of the murder of Lance Polite, a cat was found, choked to death, on the floor of the basement of the building directly in front of the murder scene. It was reported to the ASPCA and we collected the body. Well, not me, our organization. We have investigators as well, so I've been thinking and putting things together in a way that the police department never would, she said thoughtfully. I was alarmed, but my face was blank. I made an expression as though I didn't understand her talk or her direction, but I understood her now.
Prince had killed Naja's cat. Her organization picked up the cat's body and they must be extremely serious about animals if they came to my block and entered the basement in one of my buildings. But what alarmed me was what else they might have seen or picked up or reported about the basement of that building where he held Naja hostage. Did they snag the kunai knife that may have been on the basement floor? Or was the knife still sitting there, waiting to be discovered, possibly by the police, if they were continuing their murder investigation? Or did the savage yank the knife out of his eye, panic at the pain and the sight of his own blood, then run straight out to the ambulance that was parked at the concert? Did he take the knife with him? The knife would have Chiasa's prints on it, for sure. But the ASPCA is an organization, not the police, I thought to myself. She had said that they had their own investigators, but they didn't have police power, I assured myself. And the police had no reason to check the basement of that building. I slaughtered the sucker out in the open, outdoors, on the block. The lawyer interrupted my thinking. I've confided something to you. I've answered your questions. Now you need to confide something to me and answer some of my questions about this crime and your role in it, she said, switching from her animal lover personality back into the legal eagle. Were you defending a child or an animal from Lance Polite, the predator. The photo, which according to the police detective allegedly is you, looks emotional. It looks like a deep hatred being expressed through violence. If that is the case, then I understand. However, legally, this places you in the absolutely most vulnerable position to be sentenced to 25 years to life in prison, meaning You either knew Lance Polite or you saw him do something disgusting and then you went after him, meaning you thought about it, which makes it legally premeditated murder. And then you carried it out. To be convicted of this crime means that you'll be over 40 before you will ever be unbarred, unchained, and uncuffed and free. She was emotional now, leaning forward and searching me for a reaction. Have you heard or read about this young lady who was sentenced to be put to death this summer? Her name is Paula Cooper. She's from the state of Indiana. Now the laws from state to state vary. However, she was sentenced to death recently. The details of her case are completely different than yours, I suspect, but it might not be a bad idea for you to consider and know about her outcome on a similar charge. She's 16 now, same as you, she said, guessing at my age again. Her points were clear to me. Once again, the threat of 25 years to life was circulating in my chest. If you tell me that you were defending an animal or a child, I'll work my 
ass off to get you the best results, the least amount of time. Of course, if my gut is wrong and you turn out to be guilty of armed robbery or distribution of crack cocaine or anything of that nature, I can't guarantee you my best effort or the best outcome, she said. How long do I have? I asked her. She checked her watch. Well, it's almost 9 p.m. I'd like to leave here no later than 10. I work in the system, so I know what goes on in this city, especially late at night. I prefer not to ride the train after 11 p.m. No husband, I asked her. No man would allow his woman to move around the city alone late night, I said, changing the topic from the heavy reality I faced. I'm not the kind of woman who would allow a husband to control me, she said sternly. I wasn't talking about controlling you. I was talking about loving you. Then I just looked at her. Keep talking like that and I'll decide that you're an adult, not a juvenile or an adolescent, she said, flexing the power she believed she had to move my life in one direction or another. Then she held up both of her hands and wiggled her ten fingers, causing her bracelet to reveal more of the deep scar she used it to cover. No rings on my fingers, she smiled halfway. And then I knew someone had hurt this woman, and she had planned and trained to protect the hurt animals and hurt people. But in my case... She planned to protect the man who murdered the man who murdered animals and molested children. I thought about it. She's glad he's dead. So am I. We had the same understanding. We were on the same team, I decided. About court tomorrow. Will all of this be decided on tomorrow in front of the judge, I asked her. Oh no, tomorrow is simply the arraignment. It takes three minutes or less They read you the charges against you. That's it. I don't believe they'll charge you with murder tomorrow, although you never know. My gut tells me, aside from the detective's affidavit, they have not organized enough evidence. If there is a murder charge tomorrow, the prosecution gets two weeks to organize its investigation and bring you before a grand jury. Do they expect me to talk at this arraignment tomorrow, I asked? No. I'm your attorney. I'll speak for you. They'll hold you in the bullpen until your case comes up, just like they did this morning. Then an officer will escort you out. You'll stand before the judge and hear the charges, and the judge will decide if he's going to set bail. I don't want bail, I said swiftly. She gave a surprised look, as though she normally knew what to expect, was used to following a certain procedure and even knew beforehand what each person inside would say and do and how she needed to react exactly. If I go directly to the jail, where they're going to keep me as soon as I get there, I've started serving down my time, right? I asked her. Yes, that counts as time served, deductible against whatever you might be sentenced to, she confirmed, but that's down the line, she added, and her face revealed a new suspicion. And that's only if they get a conviction. Hopefully your refusal of bail is not a vote of no confidence in your attorney's ability to win this case. And you said 
the prosecution has two weeks to organize their case against me, right? Exactly. They have two weeks after having arraigned you on murder to bring you before the grand jury seeking an indictment. During those two weeks, I'll be communicating with them also. If I don't have to talk in the courtroom tomorrow, then why wait, I asked her. She looked at me curiously. You said that you're my lawyer. You can go hear the charges and tell me about it. I'll be locked up already, I said solemnly. I don't like those hand and foot cuffs and the chain that connected them together and me to the others. Behind bars, I would be confined, true, but I could still move around and work out, I believed. More importantly, behind bars, I could make prayer, I believed. In the bullpen, in the courthouse, before the judge and prosecution, I was hemmed in and still protecting my true identity. I had been six days without prayer, like those American cats who were locked up with me. Of course, I could pray within myself silently, but I could not make the salat or press my head to the floor. Why wouldn't you want bail? She asked me sternly. I'm alone in this world. I have no family. The guardian I do have He has no money, no property. He's sick and won't be able to come to court or anything like that. I told her because that's what I wanted her to believe. And because it was also what anyone would believe about any African American. No family, no money, no property. Sick? How sick? She asked me. He had a stroke. Can't talk and can barely see, I told her sealing her options or anyone else's of interviewing him. Besides, if he knew I was here, it would kill him. I can't let him find out. I can't let that happen. She looked moved. Regarding the murder, the person you were protecting, was she or was he a friend, neighbor, or relative? Was it a small boy or girl? Or were you protecting... Protecting... An animal, she asked me. I paused. We stared at each other for some seconds. I was curious if she caught on to me the way I caught on to her. I was hoping my silence could convey to her that of course I was protecting people I know and love. My sister, a blood relation, and my wife who hurled the knife, our Mrs. Marcy who was our family's only loved senior in the USA. But at the same time, of course, I was never going to tell her or anyone else that aloud and have some dishonorable authority sentence me to 25 years to life like the good detective wanted to do over the slaughter of a lesser man. She and I both knew and understood that this particular murder had to be committed. I could tell. How much time could I get for resisting arrest, I asked her, overlooking all of her most serious questions. Six months to a year, she said. 
It depends on how bad they want to keep you. And then there's the possibility of an assaulting a police officer charge. There are a lot of variables. Maybe an officer or even the accusing detective will show up. And his presence in the courtroom may impact the judge in a particular way. Send me to Rikers. Let me hear back from you what the charges are. Meanwhile, I'll be working off the conviction for resisting arrest. I already know the outcome, I told her. How could you know the outcome? Are you saying you want to plead guilty to resisting arrest, she asked. And what about the other charges they may allege? Do you want to plead guilty to those? I have to enter a plea on your behalf. Once I do, I'd organize your defense. No, I did not resist arrest. I'm saying I already know the outcome because it's my word against theirs. And the police lie with authority. That's not true, she said swiftly. Not all. I cut her off. What is true is that I never resisted arrest. I never assaulted a police officer or a detective. I am not an armed robber or any kind of thief. I am not a drug dealer. I have never been in anybody's gang. Never liked none of these dudes enough to gang up with them. I never confessed to murder, although they are saying that I did confess. And I agree with you that the guy in those news articles that you just showed me deserved to go. I said calmly. I never said that, she exclaimed with guilt. Your lips didn't. Your heart did. My words somehow silenced her. She left for a few moments and returned with an orange juice for herself and a bottled water for me. Using my left hand, I wrote out a note for her to take with her. What is it? She asked before accepting it. Read it, I told her. She took it. And I owe you, she said, smiling. I'm no freeloader, I told her. Whatever you spend on me, even if it's only your time, write it down. I'll pay you what I owe. I'm legal aid, she said. The government pays me, not the client. I understand. How much was the water, I asked. Just 50 cents. Write it down, I told her. She did. Moments later, she slumped back in her chair, and she just looked at me. Thank you for saying that, she said. For saying what? For confirming what I believed and what I felt. You did not resist arrest or attack a police officer. You were never in a gang or selling drugs. You did not commit armed robbery or confess to a murder. I needed to be able to trust myself, to trust my instincts, and to believe that even though I sit down with hundreds of young men who stand accused, some of them are wrongly accused. Some of them are innocent, she exhaled. Remember this, I told her. Babies are innocent. They are the only ones who are. When you sit down with any man, know that he is not innocent. Men are given evil options throughout each day. How each man responds to evil options and suggestions 
is the only way for you to determine if he is a good man. He may be good, but no man is innocent. She stayed for a half hour longer. We talked, and I reminded her that she needed to leave so that she could get home before 11 p.m. and get up in time to appear in five courtrooms simultaneously. By the way, my sister thinks that you are guilty. She and I argued about it on my way over here to the hospital. My sister is usually right. Most of the time, I listen to her. This time, I decided to trust myself. If I'm right, after disagreeing with her, it will be the first time I won, she said with a melancholy smile. Is your sister a lawyer also, I asked her. No, she's dead, but we talk anyway. We're twins, she and I. I don't tell anyone about her. Somehow, you seem like a person who still has a heart and who would understand, and I know from working in this system that even if you told someone what I said, it wouldn't matter because their prejudices would never allow them to believe you over me. I just looked at her. She looked good, smart, and her eyes were clear. Memorize my number, she told me before she left, handing me a business card. I don't think you really know what you're walking into. In a sense, that's a good thing. It means you don't have any experience with this kind of thing. Some of the young men I represent know the laws as well as I do because they've been in the system for almost their entire lives. Rikers is a tough place. Remember, you have a right to an attorney. If anything goes wrong before you see me, please give me a call. I'll be working on your behalf. She turned to leave. You have an unusual name, I said, staring down at her card. Her name wasn't Anne. It was Ein. I'd never heard that name before. It's Hebrew, she said, as though just stating that fact would somehow turn me away. What does it mean? She seemed surprised at even that simple question. It means prayer, she said. And Eliana, I asked, regarding her middle name, off the business card. It means God has answered, she said, still looking at me as though she wondered how I could be focused on her when I should be so weighed down by my own fears and problems. That's better than being my lawyer, I said. What? she asked. I'd rather you be the answer to my prayers. She continued to look me in the eye. That's the name my parents gave me. As for me, I've seen a lot of ugly things. I'm undecided as to whether God even bothers with our prayers. If he does listen, how could horrible things happen to children? Why doesn't he protect them? And how could he let one die and not the other? Both of them would be just fine if they had either lived together or died together. That's compassion. Do you understand me? She asked. I didn't respond. I knew something had happened to her. Her scar was on her wrist and probably even etched on her soul. 
People probably look at her every day and see the fight in her eyes, but not her sadness. I saw it almost immediately, and maybe that's why she gravitated towards me. Good night, she said softly and left. She was smart. She was smarter than any and all of the detectives, and definitely smarter than all of the police. She had figured out the case before it even became one. She had looked into the smallest details instead of jumping to the most typical and obvious conclusions. She had used her her brain and her heart in her investigation. I peeped that she was warning me not to confess to murder for honor or any other reason. I peeped that she was going to prove that I had been beaten by the cops, that their so-called unwritten, unrecorded, quote-unquote confession was false, and that Jordan Mann, who had no documented history of violence or crime, was a falsely accused 16-year-old who, like every good American boy, had read The Catcher in the Rye. Yes, that would be her angle. Alone now, I had more pieces to the puzzle than I had over the past week of my captivity. Neither the scenario nor the puzzle was completely clear yet. However, if I was correct in my thinking, the turn of events went like this. I murdered a man. Later that same night, I entered a laundromat to wash off the evidence of the murder and to pin a letter to my Uma. The laundromat was a front for some drug gang that was run, owned, operated, and or protected by some dirty cops and some Jamaican gangsters. Somehow, some drugs went missing on the same night that I entered the laundromat. Now, the dirty cops and the Jamaican gang were looking for the drugs that either one of them or both of them thought I stole. Either the dirty cops or the hustlers or both of them thought I was affiliated with some niggas who robbed drug dealers. Either way, their drugs and or their money is missing. They think I know where it's at. If I would have talked during the interrogation, which I did not, there would be one or two or three teams gunning for me. The dirty cops, the hustlers, or the stick-up kids. But the murder I committed and my silence had zero to do with any of that. What a fucking mess. I leaned back.